0: Hello and welcome to Saga 50 for 50 on Heritage Bites, produced by Heritage Mississauga. 2024 marks the 50th anniversary since the incorporation of the town of Mississauga, Port Credit, and Streetsville to create the city we now know and love. In this special celebration of Mississauga, we invite you to join us as we walk down memory lane with 50 weeks of podcasts recounting incredible moments in this city's rich history. This is Saga 50 for 50.
1: And welcome to Heritage Bites, a podcast where we delve into the fascinating history of the City of
2: Mississauga with you, dear listener.
1: Presented by
2: Heritage Mississauga, the only citywide charitable organization in Mississauga, Ontario.
1: I'm Justine Lynn, the Collections and Resource Lead at Heritage Mississauga.
2: And I'm Melissa Tost, the Social Media Coordinator with Heritage Mississauga. This time on Heritage Bites, we would like to discuss the family who once farmed the open fields Square One stands today, and how the development of their land gave rise to a new era of the city of Mississauga. But um, let's just get right into it. I hear this podcast is a very special one. Yeah, it
1: is. Absolutely. Uh, Today, we will be hearing from the perspectives of two men who were actually very well known locally and contributed greatly to the development of Mississauga in vastly different ways. William, otherwise known as Bill Carr, was really a salt-of-the-earth kind of farmer. Well, Bruce S. McLaughlin was a builder of this bright, new, shiny city of Mississauga. Both are now gone, but while they were alive, uh, we at Heritage Mississauga were able to conduct some oral histories with them independently in the 1990s. So today, as we paint a picture of the new and old worlds of Mississauga, we're actually going to hear
2: from them directly which is so exciting, we're so lucky that we have that. Um, But first, let's paint a little picture for our listeners.
1: Standing in square one today, you would hardly imagine that not long ago, this metropolitan area was nothing but farm fields. The name itself
2: alludes to this fact after all. Legend says that square one builder, Bruce McLaughlin, Gave it this name because he was literally starting what would become the city center from, well, Square One. It is for this reason
1: that I often hear people saying that there was nothing there previously. If you ask anyone who has lived in Mississauga for many years, you know, my parents, my grandparents, um, they're going to tell you that they were honestly very surprised and shocked when Square One opened in 1973. You would have to drive for miles upon miles from the nearest point of civilization until you came upon square one, surrounded in all directions by nothing. Or at least that's the story that most people will tell you. And it makes sense, of course, but it simply isn't true.
2: Yeah, in fact, the origin of the name is not exactly as it appears either. You see, Heritage Mississauga's very own board of director and Legends Row organizer, Ron Duquette, was actually the one who named the shopping mall. Working under the great Bruce McLaughlin, the team was trying desperately to come up with a name. They were thinking maybe Greenfields until they discovered another strip mall had already taken that name. The deadline was fast approaching and with seemingly their last hope dashed, McLaughlin said something to the effect of, we're just right back at square one. Ron went home that
1: night, pondering the events of the day when he remembered Bruce's offhand comment and got an idea. The mall's main four uh, anchor stores predisposed itself to the correct shape, and their hope that it would be Canada's top shopping outlet was another strike in favor of the Square One name. It made sense to Ron, but others needed more convincing. He sat down personally with Bruce McLaughlin and explained his concept. Eventually, McLaughlin and the other
2: executives changed their minds. Though the legend of it being a result of McLaughlin's vision to create a city core from Square One proved to be prophetic, We must be skeptical of its implications. And what are those? Well, that the mall was built on a vast nothingness. Not only was it, but is it home to the Mississaugas of the Credit and other Indigenous peoples for time immemorial? But this area was also farmed for generations by the Carr family. To them, it was home. It is for this reason that we cannot say that there was nothing where Square One is today. William, otherwise known as Bill Carr, lived in a precarious time between the new and old worlds of Mississauga. He saw tremendous change in his lifetime, probably more than any of us will in our lives. Bill was born
1: at St. Joseph's Hospital in the city of Toronto in 1931. Shortly after his birth, he was brought back to the family's 10-acre farm in Cooksville, where he lived with his parents, Robert Norman Carr and Mary Alice Hawkins. His father, Robert, was the son of William Park Carr and Mary Ann Carr of Pockington, Yorkshire in England, uh, and they immigrated to Canada in 1938. They initially sailed briefly in Allison, Ontario, and then moved to Marigold's Point, um, which a lot of you may know, it's roughly around Lauren Park or Clarkson today. And then they settled on concession two, lot 16, north of Dundas Street. In today's terminology, that would be on the northwest corner of Burnthorpe Road and here, Ontario Street, then known as Center Road.
2: While their farm was never a major hub that it is today, being as it was on the outskirts of Cooksville, Cooksville proper was certainly a happening place historically. You see, Mississauga is not like other cities, we're quite unique in our formation. We were formed through the amalgamation of smaller villages within the township of Toronto, later the town of Mississauga, along with the independent towns of Streetsville and Fort Credit in 1974. The name of these places you may know today, like Clarkson, Meadowvale, Malton, Lakeview, Lorne Park, Arendale, and Cooksville to name a few. And still, there are more that are considered lost villages that you probably have never heard of. Like Pucky's Huddle, Barberton, Derry West, Hanlon, Harris's Corners, Mount Charles, Palestine, and many more. Many of these were so small and fleeting that we no longer remember them, but they did indeed exist, and of all of these villages, Cooksville was probably the most significant in Toronto Township. It's importance as a
1: commercial hub in historic Mississauga, then known as Toronto Township, was largely thanks to its location being centered around the intersection of two important early roads, Dundas Street and Here Ontario Street. The village was originally known as Harrisville after its first settler, Daniel Harris, who arrived in 1808. However, soon there was a new character on the scene by the name of Jacob Cook. So Cook was awarded a contract to carry mail between York and Niagara in 1820 and began operating a stagecoach service throughout much of Upper Canada. He was awarded a tavern license in 1829 and built an inn to capitalize on travelers passing through the area. His influence prompted
2: the village to be renamed Cooksville in 1836. Even a devastating fire that ravaged Cooksville in 1852 could not stop the village. It became the early administrative center for the surrounding township, and in 1874, the village became home to the first purpose-built township hall. For many years, it served as a center for civic, commercial, and educational interests in Toronto Township. Cooksville was also home to the Canadian Vine Growers Association, which was the first commercial winery in Canada, and to the famed Cooksville Brickyard. Also, Cooksville hosted a well-known agricultural fair. Cooksville
1: joined with the other villages within Toronto township in 1968 to form the town of Mississauga. It seemed Cooksville was to be the gem within this new imagined town, vying to become a city and grow its influence. Surely Cooksville would be at the center of all this growth, right? Well, interestingly, after this point, Cooksville begins to decline quite significantly. And the reason for that has a lot to do with the car
2: farm. It makes you wonder, why was that? To explore this and understand the immense changes that Bill Carr would experience, we have to travel back to his childhood, back to the Carr farm he once knew.
1: The main portion of the Carr farmhouse was constructed out of stone and was square with a cellar kitchen, while the back portion was a frame construction sitting roughly three feet or three steps lower than the rest of the house. The farmhouse predated the family. According to the Carr family, the first owner of the property was probably a blacksmith in Cooksville known as Party. It is unclear who this party was, though it is probably in reference to Philip Party, I would think, who owned a harness shop in Cooksville. The farm was then owned by Charles Wilcox and then bought by William Park Carr before being passed down to Bill's father, Robert Carr, in 1926.
2: The farm practiced mixed farming, though they were primarily dairy farmers. They had about 25 head of cattle and shipped products out to Silver's Dairy at 588 DuPont Street in Toronto for 35 years. They also farmed wheat, oats, and barley. These would be ground into chop for cattle, either at home or in the streetsville or dairy mills. They also kept about 300 hens and 200 capons at any one time. Bill could barely remember a time
1: before he started helping out on the farm. Oh,
3: they had me doing chores as as soon as possible. As as soon as I was tall enough to hold two pails of feet off the ground, I was feeding the chickens and this kind of stuff.
1: Chores on the farm varied depending on the season. In the summer, they had to store milk to prevent it from going bad. Bill remembers. We
3: had the one place, the one well where the water trough was, we had a stone vat that was built out out of the milk house that was made out of the former widow's watch on top of the house. And we used to cut ice from the lake at Irondale behind the dam, and haul it by horse and sleigh right back.
1: How long would that take?
3: Oh, a long time. Took the biggest part of an hour to go from Irondale over to where the farm was. Then we stored it in sawdust. We had to store it, gather up sawdust after we sawed the wood. Stored it in sawdust all summer.
2: Each time they put fresh milk in the vat, they had to add ice to prevent it from going bad. In the winter, they had to cut wood for the furnaces to keep warm. Not many people had electricity, but Bill recalls that.
3: We had electricity, but most people didn't. We were one of the first ones on. I guess we were the first one on Burnhamthorpe Road West to acquire electricity.
1: In the 1940s, they also got indoor plumbing. Before that, there was a privy out behind the woodshed. Then during the Second World War, life became difficult again.
3: During World War II, Mississauga was still very rural. The whole, the whole thing, and it it was difficult because there was, as you know, there was gas rationing and food rationing. We could get gas because we had the farm, and we could get gas for the tractor. We could get more sugar than anybody else because we had the feed thrashing and corn cutting gangs.
2: But you must have lost a lot of the labor. Your neighbors gone. Oh
3: yeah, and uh, there was, there was no money much to hire, hire, do or hire a a hired man. So that's where I filled in as much as ever, I guess. During that time, I was up at 5.30 in the morning cleaning out stables and this kind of stuff.
2: Through all of this, you may be wondering, when did Bill ever just get to be a child? We know Bill would slay down the neighbouring Keys Hills and skate on a pond behind their orchard. When he eventually did receive skis, he used brooms as poles as the family could not afford any. In 1948, a neighbour made a skating rink and kids, including Bill, flocked from far and wide to play hockey every weekend. However, in terms of toys, they were few and far between. Growing up in the Depression, Bill said. There's no
3: money because I was a Depression child. And I guess I was like the other kids. I wanted water. I was told, there's no money. And there wasn't. Because, you know, we could buy bread for four cents a loaf. And we didn't have the four cents.
2: So what did he do then? Well, he made his own toys. In our collection, we have a pressed paper model of Stephenson's Rocket Locomotive. It is entirely made of paper, application sticks, and straight pins, and it's painted black. It has moving wheels and a large smokestack. This model was made entirely by Bill Carr in April of 1948. It is a model of the first steam engine in Britain. Bill actually won first place prize at the hobby show sponsored by the Brampton Rotary Club in 1948 for this model. I think his fascination with toy trains comes from
1: a real-life train that came right through his own yard. The Toronto Suburban Railway, which travelled from West Toronto to Guelph, went through the car property from 1917 until 1931, though there was no stop within the property, of course. The closest stop would have been the Cooksville train station. Bill was also born in 1931, so he grew up hearing these stories of these trains travelling through his property. In all these stories, their farm is positioned as a place of little consequence with no train stop, but also in some ways a part of a bigger history abutting his own, that of Cooksville, the commercial and administrative capital of Toronto Township.
2: Just as Cooksville and the cars were part of this microcosm of influence within Toronto Township, so too was the Stephenson Rocket locomotive of great importance to the railway industry. Stephenson's Rocket was the first modern steam locomotive born during a short frantic period of development from 1828 to 1830. A trial was held at Rainhill, Merseyside in October 1829 to choose a contractor to build the locomotives for the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, the world's first inner-city passenger railway. Of the ten entered, only five locomotives actually appeared, and of these, only the rocket completed the trial to win £500 prize and the building contract. Built by Robert, Stephenson and Co. in Newcastle upon Tyne, the rocket inspired by the speed of military rockets incorporated a number of new features. The most notable of which was the first use of a multi-tube boiler and separate firebox. Its advanced design became the blueprint for all steam locomotives built in Britain until the 1960s.
1: Trains not only revolutionized Canada in the 19th century by connecting the country from west to east, but they were a thrilling symbol of innovation seared into the public consciousness. The image of the last spike of the Canadian Pacific Railway hammered in 1885 became a symbol of national unity. Therefore, children's toys depicting these marvels were immediately popular and continue to be so for generations of children. It is no wonder then that Bill was so impressed by trains and the role that his own family had in the connecting of Cooksville to the world at
2: large. Another of Bill's paper creations was a tractor model made in 1846, likely for a school project. As a child, Bill Carr attended Cooksville Public School. I know a lot of our parents joke about walking to school uphill both ways, but Bill was actually considered quite close to school. He walked a mile and a half to school each way which was a lot better than the three or four miles that many of the other kids had to walk each way.
1: Now, this tractor was likely also inspired by Bill's real-life surroundings, as tractors were actually quite a revolutionary farming tool, which made farmers' lives significantly easier. Farming on the car farm in the Great Depression was difficult, as everything was done by horses until they got a tractor, though even this was difficult. In the 1920s...
3: After my... Two brothers came home from the war. My grandfather bought the tractor for the three boys. They, they were to share it. They bought him a tractor and he bought him a truck.
1: However, their farm remained quite rural. Bill recalled.
3: The only more modern thing we got was, a, was we got a tractor in 1944, a rubber-tired tractor. That was the first rubber-tired tractor we ever had because you couldn't get tractors in the war time.
2: So Bill remembered this luxury his family finally got as quite a big accomplishment. So it was no surprise that he chose the mighty tractor as something to create.
1: While Bill was growing into a young man in the late 1940s and early 1950s, he noticed that surrounding farms were slowly but surely selling their parcels to developers. In the late 1940s, prospective buyers became interested in the Carr farm with the intention of subdividing the land. His father was offered $12,000 for 100 acres, which was quite a bit of money at that time. After that, more and more people began offering to buy the farm, though some were more unscrupulous than others. Finally, they sold the farm to Bruce McLaughlin in 1960,
2: though they continued to farm the land until 1963. The decision was likely not an easy one, but they likely got far more money for their farm than they would have ever received had they continued farming. Also, even if they had held out, there were ways that zoning and property laws can virtually push people out. Think about it. When an area is subdivided, the land taxes usually go up, which for many of the rural farming folk barely holding on as it was, this would be the straw that broke the camel's back. Instead, they sold and made a few bucks.
1: The sale of the car farm was to become the beginning of the new Mississauga and in many ways hearkened in the death of the old Mississauga. Bill and his family had considered Cooksville's Four Corners to be the center of Mississauga. Little did they know that their former farm, their former home, would become the new city center.
2: So now into the picture returns Bruce McLaughlin, the buyer of the car farm. And let's just say he had big plans. Acknowledged as the
1: father of the Square One Shopping Centre and Mississauga city Corps, Bruce McLaughlin was undoubtedly a visionary. He was the founder of S.B. McLaughlin Associates, which later became Mascan Corporation. In the 1950s, many young builders were moving west, including early Mississauga builder Goran Ship and others. So Bruce thought he would move west to Toronto Township too. Bruce later explained this westward movement.
4: And there was a sort of a westward movement into uh, the township, which was a very laid-back township at the time, a, r- a rural society with the small villages of Port Credit, small village of Cooksville, small villages of Streetsville, and small community of, of uh, Malton.
2: He first built the Lachlan Trail Homes in the Credit View area. Then he did an industrial development in Dixie. Afterwards, he did the Mississauga Gardens development along Mississauga Road. At this point, he could have retired comfortably when he was only about 25 years old, but he decided instead to go back to school. In the meantime, his wife ran the company and they began acquiring land so that when he returned from his studies, he would have some land to work with. So he purchased roughly 4,500 acres in Cooksville. At the time, his contemporaries, such as Ship Corporation Limited, were mostly home builders. While he shared this passion, Bruce was also keenly interested in community planning.
4: Because I had studied planning uh, before there were any planners even, I traveled to Greece and studied Doxiatis and uh, uh, I traveled a lot and I became very interested in community planning. So I began to think in terms of communities rather than subdivisions. And uh, so that's why we became community builders.
1: In the late 1950s, Bruce regarded the seemingly empty car field as the perfect spot to create a new town core.
2: You see, while Bruce and Bill probably did not agree on much, they likely both viewed land as a practical commodity. Bruce knew that, practically speaking, sprawl was coming, whether he liked it or not.
4: Well, we knew that... uh... It would be a westward growth from Toronto. We knew that the, the normal process was sprawl. Mm-hmm.
1: With Toronto sprawling to the west, he knew that Toronto Township wouldn't stay rural forever. And he wanted to ensure that it was done right. After buying the property in 1960, he sat on the land for nearly a decade until just the right moment. Meanwhile, he developed the idea of a mega
4: Megalopolis is a clumsy word, but an incredibly important part of all of our futures. In effect, it means super cities, super size, super growth, and often super problems.
1: So, this idea that he's talking about, megalopolis or super city, is typically defined as a network of large cities that have been interconnected with surrounding metropolitan areas by infrastructure or transport. And basically, this creates a continuous urban area through common systems of transportation, economy, resources, ecology, so on and so on. And this is kind of important to Mississauga because um, what he was seeing was that there were all these kind of small clusters: these, the small Malton, small Arendelle, small Streetsville, and they're not really connected together, and they're also not connected. Uh, uh, to the, the communities at large, the GTA, Toronto, Hamilton, all these different places, it's not really uh, uh, gelling well together. So he is basically trying to bring uh, uh, Mississauga up to this super city standard.
2: This idea of a unified megaopolis community plan was really in response to the many developers in the township who would develop in small clusters without consulting one another, creating a disorganizing sprawl. The effects of this can still be seen in some areas of Mississauga to this day, such as the roads that don't line up. After all, historic Mississauga had always been a cluster of distinct villages. If they weren't careful, connecting these villages to create a unified city would be impossible, and would ultimately create spaces that increased congestion. Knowing that sprawl was coming, it was important to do it right for Bruce McLaughlin. With his vision set, construction began on square one in 1969, and the $44 million shopping mall opened in 1973, only a year before Mississauga officially became incorporated as a city in 1974.
1: Now, the timing of his venture was quite fortuitous, actually, and he played into his advantage. You may remember that Cooksville was the heart of Toronto Township, Nearby highways 5 and 10 was Toronto Township Hall. The first town hall on the site was built in 1873 and with additions onto the front in 1952. Opened in 1953 and enlarged in 1961, the new town hall and Confederation Square became a focal point for municipal politics, while the old town hall behind it was home to offices for Toronto Township Police and Municipal Records Department. It is no wonder that the area was a mecca of activity and exerted considerable influence.
2: Around the same time, Bruce McLaughlin had just purchased extensive acreage from the Carr family. In this, he saw an opportunity to bolster his investment. What would be better for his new shopping center, which he wished to be the center of a new and modern town, perhaps even a city one day, than to have a town hall in spitting distance? He proposed the new town hall move to his new imagined city center. Frankly, the town of Mississauga was reluctant and skeptical. However, in 1969, the old township hall at the back was destroyed by fire. Only the newer of the two town hall buildings was saved and served as municipal offices until 1971. This left the township with a somewhat aging building, which was beginning to feel increasingly cramped. So they decided to revisit the idea proposed by Bruce.
1: McLaughlin devised a plan to do a land swap. He encouraged the town of Mississauga to relocate the construction of the new city hall to square one. He even provided the land for free. He offered the town of Mississauga a new $1.5 million, 55,000 square foot, five-story office building at one city center drive on the northwest corner of city center drive and here on Tarot Street. In exchange, the town of Mississauga would relinquish their land in Cooksville, where their original town hall was located. Faced with repairing and expanding their current aging town hall, the town decided it was a generous offer and accepted the new
2: building. On June 29, 1970, while the building was still in construction, a time capsule was placed in the concrete footing by Mayor Robert Speck, the first and only elected mayor of the town of Mississauga. The town moved into the new Civic Center in 1971, and on Friday, September 10th at 11 a.m., the first council meeting was held in the new council chambers. Bruce McLaughlin was there that day, and even presented the key to the new Civic Center directly to Mayor Speck. So obviously you can see who's pulling the strings here. The area around the Civic Center was named Robert Speck Civic Square in his honor. He would later pass away from heart complications while in office in 1972. In fact, when the Civic Square was opened in 1971, Speck was not even there as he was recovering from a heart attack.
1: When the city of Mississauga amalgamated in 1974, it became City Hall and remained so until 1984 when they moved into the current postmodern farmhouse style Mississauga Civic Center that we all know and maybe some of us love uh, at 300 City Center Drive. This officially cemented Square One as the new downtown Mississauga location.
2: McLaughlin had been successful in reorienting Civic Center around his shopping mall. After all, they did not have to accept his offer. Even after they did, they could have moved anywhere else in Mississauga once that building had served its purpose. But the city didn't do that. They continued to call the area around Square One home. After all, in contrast to the old-fashioned township hall, in Cooksville, along Dundas and here, Ontario, this new city centre must have seemed so modern. Service and utility construction was buried beneath square one's grounds to allow for a future of high-rises and high-density buildings, a practice quite uncommon for the time. With the backing of the city, businesses moved into the region and shoppers flocked. Truly, Bruce McLaughlin was ahead of his time. I mean, what
1: better endorsement for his shopping mall than that? Just as he had hoped, the area blossomed into the metropolitan area it is today. That being said, the downtown core did not work out exactly as he would have liked it.
4: Square one. Now these are all the buildings around it. And you don't see any parking lots there because we had underground parking lots. We had underground tunnels servicing all of this with underground steam system. And, uh, you know, it was generations ahead of itself. And it hasn't happened the way we visualized it because in 1981 the interest rates went to 23%. And when you have a huge corporation with uh, five or six hundred million dollars of debt and the rates go from eight and nine percent to 23 percent, you have a problem. We saw the problem by selling out the Hammerson. And otherwise, we would have persisted and that would have happened. It will never happen now.
2: In any case, you might be wondering what happened to the city hall at one city center drive after they moved to their current facility. Well, it had served its purpose and it was demolished in 1988 to give way for the current last office tower on the site. I know everyone is wondering whether the time capsule was ever opened. They did look for it while building was, while the building was being demolished, but legend says that the time capsule was never recovered.
1: Now, in a strange roundabout way, the sale of the car farm and the destruction of the old ways of life brought about a new life for the same Mississauga. Instead of fields and cows, it's paved streets, lights, high rises, and the glitz and glam of square one that now occupy the former car farm.
2: And speaking of that, now, what did Bill think of this new city center? It was a very difficult thing for him. On the one hand, it was becoming the new city center. But on the other hand, that had been his home. Of the experience, Bill recalled.
3: It made me kind of sick to tell you the truth. In fact, I had a professional appointment over in Sussex Centre the other day, right up on the 16th floor on the north side. And I could look out and I could see all those buildings and cars and parking lots. And I could see three and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I told the lady I was talking to her, I said, I used to plow in those fields, right down there, right below your window. She thought that was fascinating. Yeah. It it takes you back a long ways, and it makes you kind of sad.
1: I guess. And they they tore down your house.
3: Oh yeah, they tore it down. Not not too long before they built Square One, and of course they tore the barn down too. And
2: there's no.
3: There's not a trace.
2: Not a trace. No.
1: Aside from whatever personal grievances Bill may have had, he remained perplexed as to why his home was even chosen for the new city centre in the first place. In fact, even years later, he still believed that Cooksville was the true city centre, because after all, that's how it had been most of his life.
3: Even today, because it's, well, of course it's square one, but you think more of a place like Cooksville or something being the centre...
2: And what about the village of Cooksville? What happened to it? While the village experienced a
1: clear political decline after the town left, today remains a hub of activity. Many of the first subdivisions in the city were built in the Cooksville area, and it became a place frequented by many immigrants and newcomers to the city. Cooksville hosts some of the most renowned ethnic restaurants and stores in the city. Locally, Cooksville is often referred to as the food capital of Mississauga. While it is certainly not the village, of the cars that they had kind of come to know in their lifetime, it is certainly not dead and gone. In many ways, just as it was historically, Cooksville remains a place of new beginnings.
2: So next time you walk through the hustle and bustle of Mississauga, remember that people have walked where you are for thousands of years. It may be covered up by brick, concrete, and glass, but the history is always buried down deep. Time has moved and shaped the city in new and unexpected ways. What was once rural becomes metropolitan megapolis. What was once a commercial hub becomes a cultural one. But regardless, the land continues to serve as a home to so many.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's installment of Saga 50 for 50. Help us keep celebrating the 50th anniversary of the city of Mississauga by following Heritage Bites wherever you get your podcasts. Also be sure to check out Heritage Mississauga on all our social media platforms and follow hashtag Saga 50 for 50 to stay up to date on all of Mississauga's 50th anniversary celebrations. This is Heritage Mississauga signing off. Until next time.